Hi friends. As you know, technology is not perfect. So on this episode of Womankind, I wanted to let you know that it was recorded via Skype during a snowstorm. So some of the sound is not perfect, but I did not want my listeners to miss out on this amazing content. So please enjoy this episode that's coming up and please bear with the technical difficulties. Thank you. Hi friends. Welcome to Womankind. I am your host, Kelsey Novitz, and I'm here with my guest for this week, Journey Gunderson, who is the executive director of the National Comedy Center in Jamestown, New York. Um, So hi, Journey. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So tell my listeners a little bit more about what the National Comedy Center is, because this is a center that opened up only within the last six months, correct? Yes, we opened the doors August 1st been years in the making and to tell you a little bit about it the the vision for it uh originated with lucille ball who said to jamestown um rather than just celebrate my legacy or um nostalgia for i love lucy and my career um make jamestown the destination for the celebration of comedy as an art form in a way that would educate and foster and inspire. And so that is the vision that has now been realized. And so officially, now that we're open, our mission is to provide education on the comedic arts in the form of commentary and contextualization of its bodies of work. So we're telling the vital story of comedy in America across all eras and genres of the art form And really, a lot of what you'd see in the museum is, yes, a celebration of comedy's, you know, great minds and unique voices, but while we are sort of peeling back the layers of the creative process and the things that have elevated comedy to an art form. And so that's what the experience in Jamestown now is. Excellent. And so I've seen, I have not yet been to the center, unfortunately, um, but in reading about it, I've seen that you can, if you're visiting, you can tailor your visit to your interests. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So comedy is a really broad subject matter. And so, you know, maybe that's why why nobody has built uh, a National Comedy Center type of institution until now, because it's hard. And so one, one method of entry point we came up with was this RFID personalization technology that allows visitors to give us a sense um, a sense of humor profile as step one in the lobby that's loaded onto an RFID chip worn around your wrist and then when you tap into certain exhibits it allows the exhibits to read the room much like a comedian has to read a room and so it takes into account the sense of humor of the people in the space and presents content and stories accordingly and introduces you to things that uh, you may not have indicated you like, but that may share similar attributes. Oh, that's amazing. So it's like essentially in like its most simplified way, you're basically taking a BuzzFeed quiz and then the rest of the day is tailored to you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We actually did consult with a woman who had worked for uh, Pandora Comedy mm-hmm. in terms of going through thousands of pieces of content and tagging them with attributes so that we could make this sort of nervous system work. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So how did you get involved with the Comedy Center in the first place? Do you have a background in comedy in any way? Um, 
Oh, this is funny that you asked this. Yesterday, I've never had a good answer to that question as far as my background in comedy, other than I <laughs> did like it, but mm-hmm. so do so, so do a lot of people. I mean, I read a, a few books when I was a teenager that were actually by Peter Fairley, who's one of the most successful filmmakers in comedy. You know, as I look back, I was trying to find, like, you know, what led to my propensity toward this. But right. um, my mom brought out of the archives, of our own archives, that during this, like, Montessori preschool uh, production, the program was like all of these kids doing songs, um, you know, on the violin and things like that, that were very classy. And then it said, Journey Gunderson, two jokes and a magic trick. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a stark contrast to everyone else in the class. And so finally I can say, oh yes, I've always wanted to get into comedy. <laughs> but, um, the truth is, uh, I grew up in this area I was m- like most people in this area um, of my age who knew Lucille Ball was from here, but didn't really appreciate truly what that meant mm-hmm. and didn't really engage with that legacy much. Left the area, lived in a few other places, uh, spent a lot of time in New York City, a bit of time in Spain, and uh, came back here for what I thought was going to be the summer. And I was consulting for the organization, which at the time was the Lucille Ball Desiernes Center. Uh, I had a consulting business. They were one of my clients and they shared with me, the board of directors, this larger vision. And long story shorter, one thing led to another. And here we are, you know, eight years later with the National Comedy Center open in Jamestown. That's amazing. So I, you know, I'm from Buffalo, New York. Jamestown is not too far away from here. So I, I too grew up knowing the same way that Lucille Ball was from the area, but also not appreciating it as much as I should have. Um, but for people who are not from the area, who don't, I mean, for most people, Jamestown is a name of a town that they've never heard before. Um, so is there a plan in place or are there things already like with the ball rolling that are helping to put Jamestown on the map as like the comedy center of of New York, of maybe the the United States? Yes, and uh, you're polite, um, but you don't have to be. We knew, we knew going in, we said, you know, back when the board of directors and I were discussing this, I remember saying then, even if we raise all the money, even if we hire the best firms in the world, uh, it's a major uphill battle in terms of credibility to establish the nation's cultural institution about comedy in Jamestown, New York. While Lucille Ball's legacy is enormous, that doesn't alone do it. And so uh, we knew then that without the buy-in of the artists and the industry itself, that this could risk becoming the butt of a joke. Uh, Comedians are a very intelligent but cynical, um, sarcastic at times group of uh, people. And so... You don't want to build something that's easy to be made fun of because they are the best at it. And so that was like a constant fear. Um, and so we just made sure that every step of the way we were talking with the artists and incorporating feedback and building an advisory board. And um, I'm happy to say that now in terms of putting Jamestown on the map, you know, Condé Nast Traveler just called this one of the best museums in the country. Amazing. Um, you know, the the reviews have exceeded anyone's most optimistic expectations and the reviews you know I was always nervous about trying to please two ends of the spectrum you know John Q public average American tourist casual consumer of comedy and the other end of the spectrum being 
your hardcore comedy nerds for whom this could be Mecca and the artists themselves. And I'm thrilled to say that the reviews from both ends of the spectrum and everything in between have been unanimously positive and really raving about it. I'm uh, thrilled and relieved. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I do, you know, I am being polite about Jamestown being like a place on the map, but I mean, I have an appreciation for that. I'm from Grand Island, New York, which, you know, a lot of people have never heard of. And so in my travels and things like that, people have said like, oh, so like Grand Island, Nebraska or Grand Island, like in one of the Dakotas. And, it, you know, it, it's hard when people don't know the name of your town. <laughs> I mean, early on, I joke with people that when we would call and try to book artists for the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival, which is also, I should note, you know, part of what gave us legitimacy is that we were truly working in comedy, producing a comedy festival for the last eight years while we were building this. So it wasn't like we were total outsiders to the art form and and how, uh, how it all works. But I would, you know, call people back in 2011 and they would say like, where the hell is Jamestown? Or the best was, yeah, we looked into it and, and the writing just doesn't work for Jamesburg. (laughs) Well, clearly you didn't look into it, but thank you. Right. So, so we've, we've come a long way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do for your opening weekend over the summer, I know you had some pretty huge names, um, in comedy come out for that. It, It was kind of like a festival, right? Yes, we um, we basically made the grand opening celebration coincide intentionally with the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival because this whole thing really was her vision. Mm-hmm. And so we had uh, Louis Black, Amy Schumer, Dan Aykroyd, Lily Tomlin. Um, I should pause and say that touring Lily Tomlin through the Comedy Center at midnight, uh, you know, turning everything on so that she could see it before she had to get back on the road after delivering this amazing performance in the Reginald A. Civic Center Theater. Um, it was one of the great privileges of my lifetime because, you know, she's got handlers and managers and people who just want to move on and get on the road, understandably, uh, who are careful with her time. Mm -hmm. And so it was the other comedians in town and, um, ambassadors like George Schlatter, who created Laughing and obviously has worked with Lily a lot, who had seen it and said, oh no, Lily, like you must go. And so as soon as we got the green light, all the exhibits get turned back on. We take her through and she was like a kid in a candy store. Um, And she said, you know, it's just simply incredible. She was blown away. So uh, W. Kamau Bell, another person I have a great deal of respect for, called it the house where the First Amendment lives. Uh, So it's been so interesting and rewarding uh, to see what people appreciate differently about it. George Shapiro, who is the executive producer of Seinfeld and managed Jerry Seinfeld and Andy Kaufman, uh, you know, said, I never thought I could fall more in love with comedy, but I just did by spending four days in Jamestown. Oh my gosh, what amazing and what great feedback from the people that, you know, like you said, are the harshest critics. I guess I never... I didn't think about that before, that having um, people who, you know, criticize things for a living would be, it would be very difficult to have to make something to, you know, please that audience. Um, oh, definitely. Sounds- <laughs> yeah, it was rather daunting. <laughs> it does sound like you nailed it, though, which is good. So um, I know that one of the selections that you can make of, like, your areas of interest is focusing on um, f- female comics in particular, um, so because this is womankind, can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like, if that's your selection going through the center? 
Sure. Yeah. No, it's funny you say that. Um, actually, we made a very conscious decision uh, not to. Are you going to say use the phrase female comics? <laughs> yeah. We, okay. Well, you can choose, you can select artists you like, and that obviously includes women in comedy. Right. But we made a very conscious decision. If somebody taps in the initial experience that they like Tina Fey or Julia Louis Dreyfus uh, or Amy Schumer, etc., we made a very conscious decision that that does not course that does not result in their profile being tagged that they quote like women in comedy because that's part of the problem is treating them as if they are their own species and right. uh, that there's by the you know this is comedy comedy is comedy funny is funny and so just because you like one female comedian doesn't mean you'd like another so we stripped you know, we, we prevented that from influencing the system whatsoever. We think out of respect for women in comedy. And, um, even when it comes to the exhibits, uh, we, you know, early on in the concept phases toyed with the idea, you know, should there be this whole exhibit on women in comedy? And while I think it's possible to do something like that very well, very carefully, um, our approach was, like I said, to, uh, treat female comedians just like comedians and not as if they're their own species and mm -hmm. make sure that our exhibits are representative of their minds and voices. Um, so that's how we tackled that. Absolutely. I love to hear that. I mean, it is such a delicate balance and I've had several comics on the show um, over the course of the past couple of years. And actually the episode right before this one um, was with Solange Castro, who is an LA based comic. And we were having a similar conversation and I mean, she's been doing comedy since the 90s. And so she's had kind of like this perspective of like how it has changed over time. And I mean, her, she kind of commented on the idea of some women who are in comedy trying to be funny, kind of quote unquote, like a boy and trying to have like tell jokes in a similar way to some of the men that were on the scene at the time and telling, uh, really taking on a persona where um, I think she was a little bit critical of women who were taking on a persona that um, they were trying to like appease the crowd and try to, I mean, basically like mirror their male counterparts at the time. Um, so I don't know if that's something, I mean, it sounds like you guys have like a different perspective on it where you're just rep trying to have good representation. Um, but I don't know if that kind of plays into what you guys have done. Just an example, uh, we have an exhibit body to body and it's about sort of this double standard of when women joke about their bodies the reaction is so disproportionate to when men joke about their bodies and specifically their anatomy um if you actually pay attention to the number the the frequency with which male comedians will make jokes about their anatomy um, and watch the reaction, none of those comedians get um, sort of uh, pegged as that being their thing or their style. But when women do it, it's that's what all anybody talks about. And even Paula Poundstone, who happens to be a pretty clean comedian who doesn't really do a lot of stuff that's controversial or profane, I will say, but uh, you know, she makes that comment in that exhibit, that mm -hmm. that's been her observation. And so... Um, you know, we're here to tell the story, but most of the time, another thing you'll notice about this museum is that 
storytelling isn't from our voice or some third party voiceover. It's from the voices of the artists themselves from hundreds of interviews. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that element is probably there in some way, but you, I mean, this is everything from every area of comedy. So, I mean, with that comes the things to critique about comedy over the years. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, you know, the industry of comedy and entertainment, um, you know, mirrors sexism that exists throughout the culture. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, those things are present. One of the th- one of the people you'd learn about in the National Comedy Center is Rory Warren, who is a woman in the 1960s who had several gold records that were thought of as pretty controversial and profane. Um, and so it's amazing to me that, you know, um, people like Amy Schumer are getting heat for the kind of stuff that, you know, there were some pioneering women before her. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Interesting. In terms of preparation and getting ready to open the Comedy Center, I mean, this this sounds like a huge undertaking and something that probably overtook your life. So can you talk a little bit? And I know that you have two young children, correct? Yes. So can you talk a little bit about how you balance that with, you know, having a young family at the same time as undertaking this huge project? Um, Yeah, it's not easy. And, uh, you know, in thinking about the Womankind podcast and the subject matter of women in 2018, yeah, I think that's one of the most difficult things is that you want great mother and there's no right answer and there's no guidepost that says this is the correct or minimum or adequate or right amount of time to spend with your children and so just you know, just the energy that you give to questioning that every day and every week is exhausting mm-hmm. and making the decision of when is it time to put the work away for the day and I've never spoken to a woman who has yet found, you know, some sort of people joke about or people talk about finding the balance. And uh, I've also heard a lot of women say, like, there's really no such thing. Mm -hmm. And so the important thing is to probably, um, you know, go with your gut and uh, take the pressure off of yourself that might come from outside forces and pay attention to the cues that you get from your children versus the outside world. Mm -hmm. I think that's good advice. And I mean, it also looks different for every single woman and every single family. That's right. That's right. And, you know, somebody comforted me recently in saying, well, you know, your children are finding out that there can be many sources of love. And, uh, you know, regardless of who they're spending their time with, whether it's my husband, whether it's my parents, whether it's our fantastic babysitter, uh, in many ways, that's a really healthy thing. And, it's the reality of women in 2018 and what mom meant all throughout history might be different than what mom means, uh, in 2018. But as soon as I say that, I also think back and go, you know, women have always had pressures to, uh, work hard in one capacity or another. So just the fact that we are more formally and officially in the workplace, so to speak, doesn't mean that women throughout time haven't felt guilt, mom guilt about, focus on on children versus uh, other needs in their lives. Mm-hmm. Right. If it wasn't splitting time between the workplace and home, it was splitting time between 
I mean, things going on within the home or on the farm or something. I guess I'm going way back with that one. But I, you know, there have been, like you said, different challenges at different times in terms of things that have your attention. Right. And it's about so being when you're with them very present. And that's probably the most difficult. Um, it's not just physically about who are at work or at home, but mentally, are you engaging with them or is your mind spinning about all the things that are still, uh, you know, intruding into your life from the workplace and smartphones and accessibility via text and email 24 seven isn't making that easier on moms or anyone for that matter. And so it's a time period to navigate that. Absolutely. And I like, um, that what you just said that like mom has meant different things throughout history, because I do think that that is absolutely true. Um, as you know, the word woman has kind of evolved throughout history to mean different things. So we're ever evolving. Thank goodness. (laughs) That is true. Um, So is there anything else about the Comedy Center that you would want my listeners to know, um, you know, before they come or just about the process of putting everything together? Um, You know, I think one thing I want people to know is that whether you've ever thought of yourself as being a person interested in comedy or not, you should engage in the museum. You'll have a blast, first of all. You know, you'll have fun. But you'll also likely, you know, come away inspired to take in more live comedy or to pay attention to new rising voices in comedy. Um, and one of the things, you know, one of the guide, one of the guiding principles as we developed every exhibit was to engender in our visitors a greater appreciation for the art form or the craft and why and how comedy is more than entertainment. So... In a very, I think, important educational sense, we put things into context. We connect the past to the present and make these artists and these bodies relevant to what's going on today. Mm-hmm. So it's important from an arts standpoint, arts and culture standpoint, because in many ways, comedy has never gotten that level of treatment as an art form of you know, tracing the connections of influence from one artist to another um, or teaching people about these figures whose work made up such an important part of our nation's cultural fabric. Um, But also it's important because the impact of what comedy teaches us is not limited to being entertainment. Comedy's role has always been to be a truth teller. Yes, sometimes it's just you laugh, but a lot of times it's also to be a truth teller and speak truth to power and hold up a mirror. And that goes back to the days of the court jester, who would be sneaking in digs or commentary about the king or the kingdom. And when those jokes get laughs, that is power, uh, an important form of power that you can be elected to or inherit. And so this concept of comedy's role in our culture being a power um, is just tremendously important. And I think without me even needing to say more, as relevant as anything in 2018. That is fascinating. You are essentially, I mean, I know you're at the National Comedy Center, but you are essentially a history museum. And yes, I mean, and I sometimes I think history delivered 
or even news delivered through comedy can be a, a lot more effective. I mean, look at what we've seen through like satire throughout the past like 20 years with things like The Daily Show um, and like Stephen Colbert, like his show. Um, it just makes things a little bit easier to stomach sometimes when it's delivered through a joke. Um, and so you guys have that, that power behind you at the Comedy Center. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, some will make the observation that, you know, maybe that's still at the end of the day, just an elixir or a that, you know, makes things easier to swallow when we have such tough news days. But I also think, I, I believe that it, that the presence of it really does on some level have to keep some people in check. Um, mm -hmm you know, thinking about the court jester's reaction or the audience's reaction to what the jester will say about it. I think that is an dynamic. Um, and people think so readily of things like Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live or The Daily Show, of course, but, you know, it's not limited to those kind of news satire programs. You go back and hear Carlin's bits on gun control where he's mm -hmm. saying, can you believe... They're getting rid of toy guns, but they're keeping the real ones. Or, you know, his jokes about Vietnam um, and Muhammad Ali, you know, drawing the line. Like, I, I'll beat people up for a living, but the government wants me to go and kill them. That's where I draw the line. And, and it made people laugh, but he was obviously making commentary right. about forcing people to go to war and, and by doing this. And Richard Pryor joking about shooting unarmed black people in the 1970s mm -hmm. um we have a great lenny bruce we have a great lenny bruce exhibit at the national Comedy center and there was a comedian who said that, um every comedy club in america should have a statue of lenny bruce outside um and every comedian should kiss its feet because you know he was one of the pioneers of freedom of speech in comedy and he suffered greatly for it being arrested repeatedly right from stage for joking about things like the Catholic Church and joking about the value of the ring on the finger of the priest in Harlem. And, you know, that's really important stuff and something that, again, is so relevant today. And it's not, you know, we think of that as, oh, my gosh, can you believe he was being arrested from stage? But freedom of speech is can be a thing. And so it's not a given and we have to protect it. Right. Absolutely. Amazing. I'm loving all these stories. So now you, I mean, you've listed a lot of names of people that you've had the opportunity to meet. Is there any particular person through this whole process that you were um, particularly starstruck about when you met them? You know, one of the things I'm grateful for is that for whatever reason I don't get starstruck in the sense that I um, geek out, so to speak. Right. <laughs> Thank goodness. Because I do have such, I have such a tremendous respect for anybody who does comedy. I think it's so hard. And I think it's also such a place of vulnerability to go on stage. And particularly since this is the womankind podcast, I'll say like any woman who does comedy, I have such respect for because, um, already there is this um, sentiment in the room, like it or not, whether people want to admit it or not, that is more skeptical than one's counterpart. And so uh, to put yourself out there like that uh, is very vulnerable and to be very brave at the same time. And 
Tina Fey um, recently put it so well. I was at the the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor at the Kennedy Center, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus was being honored. And Tina Fey was talking about um, being part of improv troops and skits, and in improv especially, I think to put it, and pardon me, Tina, for paraphrasing you, was that as a woman in comedy, in a boys' club scenario, you don't get past the ball that often. When you do, you know you have to score. And then she kind of joked, because she's brilliant, like, wink, wink, that was also a sports analogy, and I'm a woman, <laughs> can you believe it? And so, you know, I just, it's so admirable to be able to make um, incisive commentary while making people laugh and it's so effective because there's science to that you know when people are laughing their guards are down and that's pretty literal that's your body is going through the opposite of the fight or flight response and so you are more receptive to the point being made and um by some of what women in comedy in particular have done is so important and so brilliant excellent wow that I, yeah, it's it's good to not be a person who gets starstruck. I can say that. I if I'm if I ever have an opportunity to like talk to someone who's famous, I opt not to because I don't want to treat that. You know, they're they're people too, so I don't want to go up and like geek out, like you said. Like I feel like I would go up and just say like, "Hi, how are you?" Um, but wow, to what a pleasure it must have been to be like in the presence of people like Tina Fey and. Um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who is one of my favorites. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, meeting those women, even briefly, was, uh, again, one of the great experiences of my life. Um, in terms of geeking out, I do recall thinking to myself, okay, Journey, that's the third time you've shaken Jerry Seinfeld's hand. <laughs> like, you know, cool it. <laughs> uh, in the together, but uh, hopefully he didn't notice. Um <laughs> But oh. so, yeah, I think there's, there's a level of that, but, but mostly it's, it's respect and not really fanaticism. Right, right. Yeah, just a matter of, like, being, like, in awe of what mm -hmm. they are able to do and accomplish. Um, so that being said, have you ever tried comedy? Uh, no, not other than the same way most of us do, where we, you know, try to make our friends laugh, our right. family laugh, uh, people in the workplace laugh. Um, I stay in my lane and I think that's probably good. I think a lot of comedians appreciate when, uh, who don't do it, um, uh, for real on stage and, and write it for shows and all of those things. Um, when they respect that this is hard and this is not something anybody can do. And so, uh, again, I, I try to stay in my lane. I mean, I can appreciate that for sure. <laughs> Um, so I think we'll start moving into the questions about what it means to be a woman. Um, but before we move into that, can you just tell my listeners, um, where they can find more information about the National Comedy Center and, um, you know, the best way to get there if they want to visit? Sure. So yeah, the best thing to do is to come visit and we're open seven days a week year round the most consistent piece of feedback we've had or the common thread to the feedback has been, wow, I spent, I planned to spend a couple hours, ended up spending four or five, oh. but wish I planned, wish I'd planned to spend four or five days. So there's wow. a lot to see. Yeah. Um, and the best way to get you are not in Western New York is to fly into Buffalo. 
we're about an hour's drive from there. Um, but we're actually situated in a pretty populated, you know, it sounds remote to some people because we're not New York or LA or Chicago, but, um, you know, we're within a day's drive of, uh, Niagara Falls, Toronto, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Buffalo, Syracuse. We're within a day's drive of New York and Boston, uh, Chicago. So, just get there however you can. And if you uh, are just excited to engage with us before physically making it to Jamestown, then visit us online and join us on social media, follow us on Twitter, um, like us on Facebook, and become a member. Ooh. If you become a member of the National Comedy Center, you are supporting a cultural institution that really does need your support to keep telling the vital story of comedy in America. Um, and you get a tote bag. So it's great. Oh, a tote bag. Nice. <laughs> So, very worth it. I will be heading down there at my earliest opportunity, which, well, um, maybe in the spring. (laughs) All right, so now we are going to learn more about Journey. So, Journey, tell us a little bit more about what your story is. So, and you can interpret that how you'd like. So, maybe your background, your professional journey, whatever you'd like. Oh, my story. So... Uh, I grew up, like I said, in the in the area that I am now back in, uh, the Jamestown area, Chautauqua Lake, and engaged with um, arts and culture probably disproportionately um, more than what a lot of people in a relatively rural area get to do because of the presence of Chautauqua Institution. For people who don't know, Chautauqua Institution is an amazing cultural mecca on Lake Chautauqua, 15 minutes from Jamestown, that has program series dating back to the 1800s that basically brings the world's most experts on any given topic. And it's sort of like amazing summer camp for adults. So anyway, I, I didn't, until I was older and left the area, didn't appreciate how rare that was and how special. Um, and so then, uh, eventually moved to New York city and worked for the women's sports fan for about six or seven years and went to Ithaca college before that. And my passion at the time was gender equity in sports. I had been an athlete, uh, really into sports my whole life and felt that it was very important to encourage girls and women to play sports because of the benefits it brings them. And I could, you know, go on and on about that. It's basically, you know, there are all these statistics about self-confidence, body image, feeling empowered, you know, or just the example that women who play sports are less likely to stay in abusive relationships. Wow. So I could go on and on. That's a statistic I did um, not know. That's interesting. Yes. Yes. And that's research done by the Women's Sports Foundation. So that's a nonprofit. Background is in the nonprofit realm. Um, And it was interesting because... Uh, like comedy now with the National Comedy Center, sports, you know, it's not like working for the American Cancer Society. It, when you're making a case for support and for engaging with this nonprofit uh, and you're not doing something like curing cancer, uh, you have to really make the case for how these things enrich people's lives. And so that experience has um, benefited, benefited me greatly. And I... Uh, was traveling the world a little bit, still working for the Women's Sports Foundation. Uh, And then, like I said, started a consulting business and um, 
engaged with the Lucille Ball Desiarnes Center. And I think, you know, because I had grown to have such a great respect for people like Billie Jean King and these um, glass ceiling shatterers in women's sports, when I engaged with the story of Lucille Ball through the work I was contracted to do for the organization, for the museum at the time, I was just so taken with um, what kind of a figure she was. And so it was not hard to find passion for this new cause. And uh, unexpectedly, you know, because of this job and this mission and this vision that Lucille Ball had for this area and for her hometown, I'm now living here today. Well, that's awesome. And I mean, I'm considering Jamestown part of my area too. And we're so glad you're back. Oh, Um, thank you. (laughs) That is, I would really, I like, I, now I want to go in the direction of talking more about like women in sports. I was just thinking that I need to interview someone that um, is more of an expert in that area because it is such, there is such like a, a sexist vibe to so much of it. Um, but then there have been like really amazing strides made by so many women. So I feel like it's a very rich area. Um, but oh, yeah, yes. I, and I would have plenty of suggestions <laughs> for you. I mean, I should say Dr. Ellen Starowski from Ithaca College is the um, engaged me with the story of, of women in sports and gender politics. And she's brilliant and has really played a big role in advocacy for things like Title IX. Interesting. Um, you know, has been important for women since the 70s. And thank goodness it exists. Um, but one of the things I remember learning around that time period was we used to talk about like, well, do you know which woman has cover of Sports Illustrated more than any other? And oh. people would guess tennis players or was it Martina Navratilova? Chris Everett, uh, and it's Elle McPherson, the supermodel. What? Yeah, which is pretty depressing from a sports standpoint uh, and a gender equity standpoint. And I'm not sure that that's still true. It was true at the time in the thousands. But uh, anyhow, that was a cause I was passionate about and I'm still passionate about to this day. Interesting. Wow. And I can see how that was like a great pathway to leading to leading you to where you are now. Yeah, and, you know, just working with some brilliant grant writers and um, marketing and communications folks. And, and really, the core of what I did there was educational media production. Mm-hmm. My job was to create content that would inspire and encourage confidence in young girls um, in terms of, you know, not necessarily – if you don't feel like you're athletic or whatever, you should still get into this and, and try it because it's good for you. And educational media production is the core of building any museum. So there are more parallels than probably are readily visible from an outsider's mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. So now is the question. So, Journey, what does it mean to you to be a woman in 2018? Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think for anyone to be a woman in 2018 means that like not, you are on the front line of a battle, a war going on right now um, on politics and sexual harassment and the Me Too movement. And uh, it's it's a long time and it's not like there haven't been 
forms of the Me Too movement going on at any given time. So I don't want to breeze over uh, the impact of, you know, the feminist movements of different time periods by any means. But what it means to be a woman in 2018, I think, is to hopefully be feeling like it's important to find your voice and not just be quiet about things going on because it matters and it's time to... Um, you know, make sure that stuff that I think a lot of people didn't realize was happening is now, you know, there's a light being shown on it and that's important. And so to be a woman in 2018 means, you know, a lot of women are probably feeling pressured to comment on it, or if they're not interested in commenting on it, they are having to withstand witnessing comments or hearing comments from people who are very opinionated about it and uh, self can can take a toll and, and be tough. And so it's not an easy time for women in 2018, but I'm also really inspired by the effects of women. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so along those same lines then, what are your favorite parts of being a woman and what are the hardest parts of being a woman? Uh, <laughs> my favorite parts of being a woman, I find that question really difficult to answer. Uh, I think, I think also to be very fair, it's good to, at the same time as we're always talking about what women go through, it's a good and healthy thing to talk about what pressures are on men and the pressures of what it means to be a man are in some ways very difficult. And so I guess if there's one favorite part I have about being a woman, it's that at least um, in general, there is not the pressure on us to be extremely strong and aggressive and, you know, some of those traditional gender roles that I think, um, you know, sometimes put undue pressure on men. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm grateful not to at least be um, having to withstand those kind of pressures that, that our male counterparts have to deal with. And I guess you asked, you know, what is the hardest part about being a woman? And I think that is uh, being the feeling of being spread thin and that we are now expected to be all things to all people. And mom guilt and the pressure to look good. (laughs) You know, I'm putting it really bluntly, but the hardest part about being a woman, I think for me right now is... uh, mom guilt. And then I think the, the hardest part about being a woman in general, anywhere in the world is that it's not always enough to, um, be measured by your skill sets and what you do. It's like almost never of, well, also does she look good and is she, uh, stylish and is she made up and what does her hair look like? And I think that's just, um, you know, one of my least favorite parts about being a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there definitely is major emphasis and scrutiny on that. And you don't really see, like, you know, if there's a woman who, like, accomplishes something, like, really wonderful, like, the thing that is jumping out to me is, like, uh, we'll go back to the sports. Like, Serena Williams, um, when it, well, wait, did she, she did not win the U.S. Open. But, like, in general, like, her participating in the U.S. Open. Um, but then... You know, there were also for every article there that there is that comments on her performance in the sport. There's another article that talks about what she's wearing or is criticizing what she's wearing, and 
it's never just about what you do. And I don't think men are definitely not under that same scrutiny at all. No. And it's, and it's exaggerated by the fact that, um, you know, a lot of it's subconscious and, Mm -hmm. and it's women and men both who hold women to this standard. And it's because of years and years of internalizing millions and millions of images of women on television and in the media um, that aren't representative of what women as a whole, as a population really look like. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's not an easy, it's not going to be an easy thing to ever completely shed. Right. That's the undoing of that. I don't even think is in process right now. That is so far beyond what we see on an average day. Very frustrating. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, So is there anything that you think the world needs to know about women that it doesn't know right now? I would like there to be focus on the ways we are very much the same as men. And I don't hear that a lot um, in gender politics, but I think it's helpful um, to focus is that we are all very much alike as humans versus constantly trying to, um, ca- you know, uh, draw conclusions about the ways women are alike and the ways women are different than men. None of that is really very helpful uh, to the progress in my mind. And I think a greater focus on how we're all just people, you know, you hear people say that women are gossipy. And in my experience, I've, I think men are just gossipy. Mm-hmm. It's moody. Um, and I'm not the only one saying that a lot of people have said that. So it's nothing revolutionary, but I think if there's, if the question is, is there anything you'd like the world to know about women? It's that we're people and not all that different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, yeah, the the attributes are assigned to each gender, but of course there are people in within each gender that have all of those attributes. Um, so again, another thing that needs some undoing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this might be kind of along the same lines of what you just answered, but what changes would you like to see for women in the future? I think that... The changes I would like to see are uh, advances in things like maternity leave and the balance, the you know, the structures that we have in place that allow women to have careers and have kids without taking a big step back in their careers. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be a way to do it, and there are ways to do it. And part of it is about respect and flexibility and trust Um, and so, uh, the changes I would like to see for women in the future are, um, systems that are more supportive of having things like childcare. It fascinated me when I learned that Desilu Studios, which was built by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, which was the, you know, largest and most powerful entertainment studio of its era, uh, you know, now Paramount Pictures, they had a nursery because one of the head writers, Madeline Pugh Davis, uh, on I Love Lucy, uh, had children. And so it just was practical for them. And they were able to keep 
in the workforce, a woman who was valuable to them by making a more supportive work environment. And that was in the 1950s. But you don't see, I mean, and yes, there are definitely a lot of companies who do that. So um, I'm glad that that's happening, but I, I don't think it's as prevalent as I, it should be by 2018. Right. I don't think that that is a standard, but look at that. That's just a reflection of, you know, having a woman in a position of power within a company leads to the changes of like the needs of the people that are in the company happening. And so they needed childcare. It was there. And so I think the fact that that isn't there speaks to the fact that, you know, women don't always have those prominent roles in all companies in all in all brand. Well, now that's changing in our government, which is great. Um, but you know, not having that voice there leads to having a lack of those tools. So hopefully with having more people or more women in positions of power, that is something that will shift. Yes. Yes. I, I believe it, it will. And, you know, I should say that I was very fortunate in that by the time I had children, I had built that trust with the board of directors at the National Comedy Center in Jamestown. And they knew I was so passionate about my work that the energy and time I had, I would be giving to it. Uh, and, and, you know, them dictate exactly what uh, time I could spend with a newborn. Uh, they trusted that I would, um, you know, prioritize accordingly. And uh, so I've been grateful for that experience with them. But had I not had the time to build that relationship in advance of having children, I'm sure it would have been much more difficult. And that's certainly much more frequent of a case that women in America are dealing with. Absolutely. Yeah, there shouldn't have to be like that establishment. It should just be something that comes with the territory when working. Mm -hmm. So I think um, we'll move into talking about story your, your story of subversion, um, which is Lucille Ball. So if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about the ways, I mean, you've already kind of touched on a few of them, but some of the ways that Lucille Ball was a subversive woman. Sure. So, um, you know, this was an interesting thing to think about, stories of subversive women. And I should say that so many names came to mind. Um, Lucille Ball, for sure. Billie Jean King. Uh, Donna Lopiano, first uh, female athletic director of a Division One institution. Rusty Warren, who I mentioned, you know, female comedian with gold albums that were pretty profane in the 1960s. Moms Mabley, uh, a female black lesbian comedian. Um, you know, I mentioned any woman doing comedy today or who has ever done it. Um, you know, if I talk about my mom, you know, when I'm thinking about women I admire and stories of, of women who have been subversive uh, to get done and to change the systems. Um, if I talk about her, I, I'll choke up. I have so much respect for her. But one woman that I know she has taught me about and, and used to mention when she cited heroes and women she respected who made parents uh, was Margaret Sanger, who pioneered uh, birth control. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty important. Uh, so it was tough to sort of think about um, you know, what is a favorite story of subversive women who have changed institutions? And I think my favorite is maybe that, um, you know, Lucille Ball, if you look at I Love Lucy and you're not paying close attention, it seems like 
oh, she's this kind of silly or, um, you know, this woman who's just always getting into trouble and Ricky always has to sort of admonish her and keep her in line. But if you look more closely, the themes for that time period were pretty um, feminist, I would say, because the theme was always that she wanted to get out of the house and that she was not satisfied staying at home and being a housewife. Um, you know, she was always trying to get into the workforce, get a job, um, get into entertainment, have an exciting life outside of the home like her husband could. Um, so when CBS came to Lucille Ball and offered her, you know, the career opportunity of a lifetime in entertainment, her own television show based on the radio show, My Favorite Husband, and she said to William Paley and CBS executives, uh, I want my Cuban husband in real life, Desi Arnaz, to play my husband on the show. And they balked. They said, like, absolutely not. This is, you know, 1950 at the time. No one in the country is going to embrace you as a couple. No one's going to believe he's your husband. And she said, well, he is my husband. And stood her ground. And they took the show on the road sort of vaudeville style, performing it to audiences, perfecting it, proving that America embraced them as a couple. And then eventually flipped the entertainment business model on its head to produce the, sh the show themselves out of pocket. And so that story alone, you know, shows how Lucille Ball was a subversive woman who changed an institution or played a role in changing an institution. And then fast forward to, you know, unfortunately when she and Desi split up, she took over Desilu Studios and became the first female head of a major Hollywood studio. So she had an all-male board of directors. This is 1960 at the time. Um, you know, many vocals of her for sure, but she'd worked in entertainment her whole life and knew what she was doing. Um, there were a lot of people and rumors that said, oh, she wasn't easy to work with. There were words used for her that weren't flattering and I suspect it was just that it was 1960 and she was a woman who knew what she was doing and wasn't afraid to say so uh, and then a lot of people know the famous story of the fact that when Star Trek was um, it was a risky high budget bizarre project on paper and twice she overruled her all-male board of directors to green light the series, to green light uh, paying for the production of the pilot. So even after it was rejected the first time, she green lit it a second time, this time starring William Shatner. And so without Lucille Ball, you could argue there never would have been Star Trek. Wow. Um, so she's I did not know that. Here. Yes. That's so, so cool. So she was brave. She was resilient. Um, you know, not. I don't think anything was just handed to her. And so fast forward now to someone else I have a great deal of respect for. If you look at Tina Fey and what she did when she got her own show, created her own show, 30 Rock, um, talk about a woman sort of holding up a mirror to an institution from within, uh, creating the character of, you know, Alec Baldwin's character so that she could tell her story or so that she could take from what she had observed and experienced in, in life um, and make it funny and make it part of the plot, but also, I don't know, you know, have an impact on what people thought and what they could see from smart, hardworking women like Tina. Um, and then, you know, you know, I mentioned that 
it was such a special experience to see Tina Fey talking about her respect for Julia Louis-Dreyfus on stage at the Kennedy Center for the Twain Prize. And somebody pointed out um, in that evening that honored Julia Louis-Dreyfus that in her role as Elaine on Seinfeld, she never dressed in a way that made her a sex symbol. Um, you know, I think the comment made was that uh, her comedy, she should be measured by her comedy and how funny she was. And she wasn't really a character that uh, dressed in, in clothing that made her a sex symbol uh, allowed you to focus more on the fact that she was so funny. And I never thought about it before, but when someone pointed it out, I thought, yeah, that's more rare than she was given credit for. It's pretty Absolutely. rare that women on television, the women on television aren't, um, you know, characters and dressed in a way that while they're being funny or while they're delivering the lines, they also, um, you know, are some kind of, of sex symbol or, or source of attraction. And obviously she's a beautiful woman. And it wasn't like her character was free of that by any means, but the observation I think was valid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've actually never really thought about that before, but that is kind of a huge thing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, one of the themes of that evening honoring someone like Julie Louis-Dreyfus, um, was how hard she worked. And, I think that's a common thread. If I think of the names Lucille Ball, Tina Fey, Julie Louis-Dreyfus, um, these are women who had to be resilient to get where they did and um, got where they did because they were working so hard to make sure everything they did was spot on. Mm -hmm. Wow. I love those women. They're the best. <laughs> 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 so... I mean, Journey, I could sit here and listen to your stories all day, but unfortunately we have come <laughs> to the end of the episode. Um, so is there anything more that you want my listeners to know about the center or about you or anything else? No, I feel bad that your listeners have had to listen to me for this long, <laughs> but uh, any, any, I guess that's the last message. Anybody who's made it this far, thank you for listening. I, I think it's fascinating. It. <laughs> And uh, come visit us in Jamestown. Absolutely. So head down to the comedy, the National Comedy Center. Um, and now, like, now that you said, like, I need to go for more than one day. Like, I need to go back and check, have all these different experiences with it. So I'm That's looking right. forward to that. All right. Well, well thank if, oh, thank you thank so much for being here. You. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you for doing what you do with the podcast. It's important stuff. Thank you. I'm, I'm trying to get the stories out there. Um, and thank you for doing what you do. I, having a comprehensive history of comedy, I think, is something that is so important to our country because it's something we value so much. But it's, kind of, it's been up until now kind of this like nebulous thing. And now you have it all in one place. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> what we have. And um, yeah, I'm thrilled with it. I'm, I'm excited for more people to check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Journey. And if you are looking to get in touch with Womankind, you can find us at Womankind Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, um, on our website at www.womankindpodcast.com, or email us at womankindpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye, friends. <laughs>